I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 in our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Pastor Kent Hughes writes this about the book of James. He says, James is preeminently a moral theologian. For him, what we do says far more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say we believe. In James's moral theology, God's message to us is that genuine faith is to affect everything that we do. It controls everything. In chapter one, we saw that genuine faith controls how we respond to trials, that we count it all joy and we seek wisdom from God. Chapter one shows us how we should respond to temptation, uh, that, that we should believe every good gift comes from God and we should avoid this, the temptation or the deception rather that temptation offers. And it showed us how we should respond to the word, that we should be quick to hear and that we should be doers. And now in chapter two, we discover that faith in Christ should also control how we respond to other people. The people in James's day had a problem, and so do we. We are prone to use the world's measuring stick in assigning value to other people, and that's a problem. We are too often shaped by our culture rather than being shaped by the word, and we tend to look at people from an earthly perspective rather than seeing them the way that God sees them. The issue that James addresses in this text is that his readers tended to see or tended to gravitate towards the rich, those who were wealthy, those who were successful, those who were popular, while they were ignoring the poor, the struggling, and the unknown. And James's point to them and God's point to us this morning is this, Faith in Christ should move us to love other people without distinction. There should be no partiality, no preferential treatment. We are to love others without distinction. Our world is full of partiality. It's marked by bias. Many people display a sort of favoritism. But the church, the body of Christ, we are called to be different. The church is to be a counterculture. It's, we are to weigh value differently, to show love without partiality. And James gives us three powerful arguments that strongly confront the sin of partiality within the church. And the first we find in verses one through four, and it's this, showing partiality is incompatible with faith in Christ. Look in verses one through four. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The problem with putting too much stock in wealth is that it really shows a lack of perspective. James has already pointed out the folly of putting too much stock in wealth, of boasting in wealth. Back in chapter one, verse 11, he wrote that the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. 
its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But the people that James wrote to were lacking this perspective. So wrapped up within this opening command, the command to show no partiality, wrapped up within it is a powerful perspective changer. He points us not simply to the emptiness of riches, but to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have placed our faith. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in verse one. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. To call Jesus Lord is to call him master, to acknowledge that he is over us and has all authority. If you remember back in chapter one, verse one, James had introduced himself as a servant of the Lord. Jesus is master, James is servant. And here he reminds us that we are too. We are also servants of the Lord. And therefore we are to serve him and not to serve our own interests. Showing partiality, giving deferential treatment to those who have something that could benefit us shows that we are not submitted to the Lord, but serving ourselves. He calls Jesus, uh, he, he calls him by his name, Jesus, the Greek form of the Hebrew name, Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So Jesus is our Lord, he's our master, but he's also our savior. He is Jesus, Yeshua, the one who has rescued us and redeemed us by his grace. This reminds us that true spiritual riches are ours in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, we are supposed to value what Christ has done for us, not to place value in what some mere man might potentially do for us. He calls him the Lord. He calls him Jesus. He also calls him the Christ. Jesus is the king. He's the one who was promised as the son of David, the one who is destined to rule over the nations, the one who has ascended to the right hand of the father. You see, Jesus is not just our master. Jesus is Lord of all. He is the king. So how can we be impressed by the importance of some mere person who comes into our midst when the God-man, Jesus Christ, has called us into his kingdom. You see, James is giving us a different perspective here. We have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only does James remind us of the supremacy of Christ, but also of the splendor of Christ. He calls him the Lord of glory. And I love here how the, this majestic title, the Lord of glory, instantly contrasts with the trivial, empty value of human wealth in verse two. At the end of verse one, he calls him the Lord of glory. And then in verse two, he says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, that gold ring, that fine clothing, those symbols of wealth were a kind of glory, something that caught the eye of those who were present and impressed them. But should we really be impressed by that when we know who Jesus Christ is? If you're impressed by that, the only explanation can be that you have forgotten about Jesus and your perspective is off. You see, there's massive implications to holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you claim to believe in him and you claim to belong to him, you claim to be in a saving relationship to Jesus Christ, then partiality is completely out of place. Why? Why is that? 
What does my treatment of others have to do with my faith in Jesus Christ? Everything. When you show partial treatment or preferential treatment to someone and you ignore someone else who doesn't have anything to offer you, it reveals who you are really loyal to and it reveals whose agenda you care most about. It shows that you think being friends with the wealthy will bring you certain benefits. It shows that you think being close to those who are successful may be perhaps a useful networking opportunity for your own career. It shows that you think being around those who are popular or beautiful or stylish will somehow increase your own social standing. You think that connecting with those who are academically accomplished will somehow add to your own credibility. But you think that being around those who you deem beneath you will somehow cost you, that it will drag you down, that it will cause you to miss out on something that is better. My friends, this is nothing more than a supreme concern for self. And this is incompatible with faith in Christ. The advancement of self is incompatible with advancing Christ's glory and being concerned first and foremost with his kingdom. The one who who professes faith in Christ has by definition come to deny self and to proclaim highest loyalty to Christ. We have by definition nailed our agenda to the cross and submitted fully to the agenda of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to his priorities, to his will, to his kingdom. We care most about his purposes. There is no room for partiality in such a heart that has been gripped by faith in Jesus Christ. Verses two through three give us a hypothetical situation that James uses to show us what he's talking about, where this rich man comes in and the poor man comes in and the rich man's invited to the place of prominence while the poor man is given the leftovers. And then he asks a pointed question in verse four that's aimed directly at our consciences. Look in verse four. If that's what you do, if you're doing what's, what, what we find in verses two through three, he says in verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, Christ is Lord, master, and king, and he does not make such distinctions among us. So who do we think that we are to divide people up like that? James says that's sinful behavior. You've made these distinctions among yourselves and that sort of behavior must be stopped. But he presses even deeper than our behavior and he gets to the issue of the heart. He gets to our thoughts. He says, you've become judges with evil thoughts. When we make such distinctions, when we show partiality, it reveals this heart issue that we have a distorted perspective, that we have selfish motives. We have evil thoughts, like a judge who twists the law in order to benefit himself. We've become crooked and unjust. And this is wrong thinking that is underneath and behind that sort of wrong behavior. And James says that needs to be corrected. Those who truly possess faith in the Lord of glory should never be swayed by the empty, vain, temporary glory of clothes or popularity or talent or success or fame or beauty or intellect. No, making distinctions among ourselves based on the measurements of the world 
does not display faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It shows our thinking has become infected with the world's values and that we are concerned with self rather than Christ. Showing partiality, James says, is incompatible with genuine faith in Christ. That's why he commands us, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's a second argument, though, that James gives us. Number two, showing partiality is also contrary to the gospel of grace. This is what we find in verses five through seven. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Showing partiality, James says, is contrary to the gospel of grace. Verse one is the command, don't show partiality. Verses two through three give us a negative example of that. Verse four accuses our, con- our conscience. And now verse five begins James's argument. He's reasoning with us, trying to get us to think correctly. James is ready to convince you, in other words, if you don't agree that showing partiality is wrong. James says that, that if you give preferential treatment to some, then we're actually behaving in the exact opposite of the God who saved us. And we're living out a sort of anti-gospel. It's contrary to the gospel of grace. James points out two specific ways this sort of behavior is contrary to the gospel. First of all, it shows dishonor to those whom God loves. That's verses five and six. God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. Verse six, but you, in showing this preferential treatment, have dishonored the poor man. The gospel is this. God has chosen in his grace to bestow spiritual riches upon those who are otherwise completely spiritually bankrupt. And this salvation is often extended to those who are, by the world standards, poor. The grace of the gospel is not that we can somehow pay the fee to get in the door to God's kingdom. No, God finds us. He seeks us. He calls us, chooses us, and then lavishes upon us the riches of his grace. And so Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You see, the Lord of glory delights to show his glory by saving people who most painfully feel their own need. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 puts it this way, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God loves needy people. God saves needy people. And spiritually speaking, that's all of us. It's all of us. For us to discriminate against the poor or those who seem to have little to offer us That's to ignore the fact that God has not treated us that way. We had nothing to offer him. And we were absolutely bankrupt spiritually and morally. In showing partiality, we are failing to extend to others the grace that we have received. 
rather than reflecting his love, we are dishonoring the very ones that God has chosen to love and bestow honor upon. Scripture tells us that in the church, in Christ, there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female. We are one in Christ, and we stand on equal footing at the cross. The gospel is the great equalizer. It raises each of us up to new identity in Christ. No one is lowered to achieve this equality. All who trust in Christ are lifted up as a new creation and made heirs with Christ. We are now children of the King, and this is an incredible honor to be chosen by grace, to be an heir of God's grace. God forbid that we would ever dishonor those whom he has honored by pouring out his grace on them. This is contrary to the gospel because it dishonors those whom God has shown love to and grace to and shown honor to, but also it shows disloyalty to the kingdom of God. This is his point in verses six and seven. He says, you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James reminds his readers that these rich people they admired so much that they were fawning over, that they were the ones who were causing so many problems for the body of Christ. All of the, the yous in verses six through seven, when he says you, 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 those are all plural in the Greek language, meaning that it's not an individual person that's been mistreated, but collectively as a group, the church had suffered at the hands of the rich. Instead of showing a love for God's people and a loyalty to his name, some of these believers were cuddling up to those who were oppressing God's people and mocking his name. They've blasphemed, James says, the name by which you were called. Two points of clarification are needed here. Is God condemning all who are rich in this text? Is it somehow sinful to be wealthy or to be successful? And is it more righteous and more holy to be poor? No, that's not James's point. I want you to keep in mind here that James is writing to a specific group of people who are living in a specific historical context. Back in chapter one, James is writing to the dispersion. These are Jewish believers who have been scattered away from Jerusalem because of persecution for the sake of the gospel. So they are religiously and ethnically, culturally, outsiders in all the places they have gone. And because of that, they've experienced much persecution. And because of that persecution, many of them, most of them even, were poor. This limited their, their economic opportunities. It limited their, their, um, um, their opportunities to buy and to sell and to work. They were oppressed for the sake of Christ as Jewish believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But that doesn't necessarily describe us right now, today, the church in the Midwest, in the United States. Um, so, so I don't want you to think that James's words here about the rich mean that all rich people are under God's condemnation. Um, secondly, not only do we need to take into consideration the historical context, but we need to remember what other places in Scripture teach us, that God loves rich people and God saves rich people people. He saves the wealthy. Although it is, according to Jesus, hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, with God, all things are possible, including the salvation of those who seem to have it all by worldly standards. And aren't we thankful for that 
as those who live in the United States in 2020, where we have access to video cameras and the internet and cars and things like that. Uh, I'm thankful for that. We have several examples in the New Testament of wealthy believers. We have Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea in John chapter 19. We have Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman whom we meet in Acts chapter 16. And Paul even gives Timothy some instructions on how to pastor wealthy believers in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul writes to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When we read more broadly in scripture, it becomes clear that being wealthy, having resources is not a sin to be repented of. It is rather a blessing to be used for God's glory. A second point of clarification. Um, so, so first of all, James is not just condemning the rich. It's not a sin to be wealthy or successful. But a second point of clarification is this. Is James condemning one form of discrimination, one kind of partiality, and replacing it with another? Is it somehow righteous for us to, to tilt the scales the opposite direction? that we should have a bias against the rich and towards the poor, that we should show preferential treatment towards the oppressed? No, that's not what James is teaching. You see, our righteousness, our treatment of other people, practical righteousness, our moral, ethical behavior is to be a reflection of God's character. And God's standard is perfectly just and equal. This is made abundantly clear in the Old Testament law. There's many places we could point to, but one such text is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. In the law of Moses, it says this, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. It is unrighteous to have a different measuring stick for different people and to treat people differently, no matter which way we're tilting the scale. It is not biblical to try to stick it to the man, the way some people might say it. There must be equal standards, equal treatment, regardless of where someone's economic standing is. We are to show no partiality, neither to the rich nor to the poor. We are to love without distinction, without distinction. I want to just share a warning, if I may. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail but it is in vogue right now, politically speaking, to demonize the rich. And in an election year, and there's a lot of rhetoric going on, I want you to be aware that there is often a, a self-righteous claim that's out there in our culture, a self-righteous claim that, that says they want to help the poor, but if you look beneath the surface, beneath the surface, you will often find that what looks like love for the poor is actually enmity towards the rich. If you pull back the curtain, what you often find is greed and covetousness, wanting what someone else has. You will find envy, hating someone else because they have what you don't, what you wish you had. You will find when you pull back the curtain, a lust 
for power, a refusal to be content with where God has placed us and a hunger to see the tables turned and to get a sort of revenge over those who seem to have all of the privilege. Too many Christians, too many in the church are quick to jump on that bandwagon because, hey, helping the poor is something that Jesus would do, right? I just wanna plead with you not to be naive. Those who push for the overthrow of the rich, they cannot point to James as support because that's not what James is teaching. That's not what he's saying. Very simply, what James is saying, what he is teaching, is he is warning us to beware of honoring those who dishonor Christ and of, and of fawning over those who are actually persecuting the church. James is not arguing for simply a redirection of our sin. He, he's not saying that we should just rearrange our partiality. No, he's arguing for a complete change in perspective, one that is loyal first and foremost to the kingdom of God, not to our own agenda, also not to a political movement or not to some worldly ideal. He's simply saying we are to love without distinction and not show any partiality because it's contrary to the gospel of grace. Showing partiality is contrary to the gospel because it dishonors those whom God loves and it shows a disloyalty to his kingdom. But there's a third argument he gives us. Showing partiality, third, is morally sinful before God. This is verses 8 through 13. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James's concern here about not showing partiality is that this kind of behavior is more than just a lack of common courtesy. James isn't just trying to make us nicer people. Showing partiality is a violation of God's holy law, and it is therefore sin, and it is therefore serious because it leads to judgment. It leads to judgment. It's serious, first of all, because it's a violation of God's will. That's his point in verses 8 through 11. Jesus has told us that the greatest commandment is to love God completely And the second commandment related to it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is basically a summary of the Ten Commandments. To love God with all your heart is a summary of the vertical commands. And to love your neighbor is a summary of the horizontal responsibilities we have. So partiality disregards the second greatest commandment. And James says it therefore is a violation of the law. And now what James says here in verse 8 in verse 9, that if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law. And in verse 10, that if you fail in one point, you become accountable for all of it. What James is saying here is not necessarily that all sins are equal. That's not true. If you look at the Old Testament law, you see varying degrees of punishments for different kinds of sin. 
God's justice is always in measure with our sins. His point is not that all sins are equal. His point is that if you break one part of the law, then what are you? You're a lawbreaker. That's what you are. If you transgress, to use the words of verse 9, then you are a transgressor. And you are therefore accountable as a breaker of the law, as a transgressor of the law. And he's arguing, I think, against those of us who might say, is this really that big a deal, James? If I you know, tend to draw, if I'm drawn towards some people and I avoid other people and I don't love everybody equally, is that really such a big deal? Well, James says, yes. Even though many people may commit this sin and it may be socially acceptable in certain forms, consider this. The law is the unified expression of the character and will of God. This law was fulfilled perfectly by Jesus Christ. It was embodied and taught by Jesus Christ. And so James calls it in verse eight, the royal law. It's the law of our King, Jesus Christ. And to disregard the law is to disregard Christ. It's to disregard the one who speaks through the law. Notice verse 11. He says, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. When we violate any part of the law, when we disregard the law, we are disregarding the one who gave us the law. And that's a big deal. There is no selective obedience to Christ. It's all or nothing. Showing partiality is wrong. It is sin. And it's a disregarding of Jesus Christ. But secondly, it's serious because it invites God's judgment. It invites God's judgment. Verses 12 through 13. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James warns us that preferential treatment, showing partiality, this kind of bias, it has consequences. Verse 10 tells us that as lawbreakers, we are accountable. And verse 12 urges us uh, to respond to this truth, to let everything we say and do be done with the knowledge that we are going to stand before the judge one day. And we are going to be judged under this law of liberty. Notice it's not the law of Moses with all of its rituals and all of its unique uh, rules for that day. We're going to be judged under the law of liberty as it is embodied by Christ. Perfect love for God and perfect love for others. And the one who fulfilled this law is going to be the one who stands to judge us by this law. In James chapter 4 verse 12, James says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. The good news there is that Jesus is able to save. The sober warning is that he is also able to destroy. For those who are in Christ, for those who have genuine faith in Christ, we know that there, there is no condemnation for us. That's the good news of the gospel. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Romans. The day of judgment for us will be a day in which our standing in Christ guarantees we will be accepted by God. Eternal life is ours, and we know that with a certainty. But although we are under no condemnation, our actions will be evaluated and our works will be examined. To use the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, those works will pass through the fire and the wood, hay, and the stubble 
the things that are corrupt, the things that lack eternal value, they will burn. But the good works will remain, the gold and the silver and the precious stones. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a reward coming for those who are believers that, that is related to our good works as Christians here in this life. And our behavior needs to be marked by a realization that that day is coming. But for some, this day of judgment will reveal something very sobering. It will reveal that they never knew Christ. That it will reveal that they are not in him. They have not been reconciled to God through faith in the death and resurrection of his son. And so they are therefore under condemnation. A life that is characterized by partiality, a lifelong practice of discrimination, a life that, that proves to be self-serving and refuses to show mercy to others, that is evidence, James says, of a person who is spiritually dead, a person who is separated from God, a person who is still in their sins. And there will be no mercy for such people on the day of judgment. James is touching here on a theme that he will expand throughout the rest of chapter two, that good works always flow from genuine salvation, from true faith, saving faith. Judgment will be without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Why? Because they are giving evidence that they have never repented of their sin and they've never received the mercy that God extends to sinners through Christ. If they had received this mercy, then they would have shown it to others. But mercy will triumph over judgment, verse 13, in this sense. When we stand before the judge on the last day, if our lives were marked by showing mercy towards others, compassion towards others, love without discrimination towards others, then that will demonstrate, it will be the proof that we have indeed already received God's saving mercy. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We have no fear of judgment in this case. Mercy triumphs. So let me ask you, as you read this text, and as you're listening to my words this morning, evaluate your life for a moment. Do you tend to show favor to some and ignore others? Maybe it's not a financial thing for you. Maybe you don't care if somebody's wealthy or not, but perhaps you are impressed by external appearances. You gravitate towards those who dress like you and act like you, who seem to be in the same social stratus that, that you are. You know, in our culture, we tend to put a premium on appearance and physical attractiveness. Maybe you're the kind of person who gravitates, the, gravitates towards those who were popular and outgoing, and you avoid those that are difficult to talk to. Or maybe you're the kind of person who gravitates towards the quiet and intellectual types, the people who think like you and, and maybe enjoy the same sorts of, of books or, or hobbies that you do. Maybe you're the kind of person who feels a little uncomfortable around people that are different. They're of a different ethnicity or a different generation than you are, from a different background. Maybe they have a different culture. 
James tells us not to show partiality in the church. We are to love without distinction and to give no special treatment to anyone, but to welcome all equally. To show partiality is incompatible, friends, with faith in Christ. It is contrary to the gospel of grace that we have received, and it is morally wrong before God. I want to add one precaution for some of you who perhaps may feel discriminated against. Maybe this sermon and this text is bringing up painful memories and real experiences that you've had at the hands of others who have not treated you rightly. Maybe it's because of the color of your skin. Maybe it's because of your age. Maybe it's because of how you educate your kids or your politics or your culture. But you feel that other people have mistreated you and they have shown partiality. I want to urge you, please be careful this morning to guard your heart against any sort of resentment or bitterness towards other people. Guard your heart against hypocrisy and returning partiality in kind. I want to remind you of the story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18. There was a servant who owed the king an insurmountable sum. And he came before him when the time was come, when the debt was to be paid. And he asked for mercy. And the king bestowed mercy upon him. He forgave the debt. And that servant, as he left, crossed paths with a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller sum. And the man refused to show mercy to his fellow servant. Jesus says that this wicked servant was condemned and thrown in prison to be punished for his gross hypocrisy. Let me encourage you, friend, if you've been discriminated against, if people have not treated you rightly, do not allow resentment or bitterness to fester in your heart. Consider the mercy and the love and the grace that you have received from God through Jesus Christ, if you're a believer. And in light of that, Let me encourage you to extend that same mercy and that forgiveness to others. Reflect the grace of the gospel to them and don't allow your heart to be shackled by bitterness or resentment. My friends, let me just remind us in in closing, we are all spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. All of us had nothing to offer him, but God has chosen the poor of this world, you and me, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. He has lavished upon all who believe the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. May we each endeavor to follow his example, to live out our faith in harmony with the gospel, in obedience to his royal law. May God be glorified as we extend to others the same mercy that we have received, as we seek to love them all without distinction. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it encourages us as it reminds us of your grace. It reminds us of the mercy that we have in you. And I thank you also, God, for the grace of conviction that your spirit is so faithful to gently expose those areas of sin in our hearts that need to change. Lord, we know that the thrust of this text is not just dealing with behavior, but dealing with the heart behind that behavior. I pray, God, that today, through the preaching of your word, that you would do real work in our hearts, that your spirit would would change us, that we would reflect more faithfully the grace and the mercy and the love that we find in the gospel, the grace and mercy and love that so many of us have received. 
I ask God that you would make our church a good example of impartial love, of grace that is shown without distinction to all. And God, I want to pray for any who are listening right now who have yet to receive the saving grace of the gospel. Perhaps today they're realizing that they are spiritually bankrupt apart from you and they need something that only you can provide. I pray that, Lord, today they would understand that there's nothing they can come and offer to somehow earn this grace. There's nothing they can do to somehow earn salvation or accomplish it on their own. They need simply to come as beggars with empty hands, trusting your promise that you will save all who look to the cross in faith. I pray that today you would awaken them to their need and fix their eyes upon our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who has fulfilled the law, who has died to pay the penalty for sin, and who has raised again to secure salvation for all who will believe in him. Lord, let your gospel go far and wide today and take root in the hearts of those who need to know you. We pray, God, that you'd be glorified this morning in all of this, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.